0: the more you involve people the more they get to tell their story the more they feel part of it and the more they feel part of it you know the bigger it all grows this thing so yeah storytelling storytelling
1: Welcome to Generation C, a podcast by Kobus, where we explore creativity, growth, and the good life. My name is Julius Gable. And my name is Karp Kronike. And we are your hosts.
2: And today we have Ian in the studio. Ian is the founder of Demi, a food startup that he started during the pandemic that allow food experts and chefs to be paid for their knowledge and community. Ian is originally from Ireland, so he moved to Copenhagen when he was fairly young in his teenage age, where he played in a punk band. And after that, he had been in amazing places such as Vice, lad Bible, uh, Imperial Spirits and Tunzer, and where he had really unfolded his creativity
1: and been a part of building uh, amazing brands. Along his journey, he also... Uh found out that he has autism and HDHD. and it has been really important for him to also show that you can have a successful life and a business even with this diagnosis we are going to ask him about how it is being autistic and also a leader and entrepreneur at the same time and also how this sort of manifests in the way that he thinks uh, creatively and how he, he works in general so we are super excited to speak more with, uh, with Ian and Explore his uh, his creative mindset. So uh, let's uh, let's get started.
2: Well, first of all, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to to drop by. And also, uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a while, uh, like we like we talked about. But we would uh, really love to dig into to your story because I think it's it's so interesting and humble about it as well. But I think it's yeah, it's special, uh, like how you ended up. In Copenhagen, started out playing punk and then then now in food. And like all the steps between that as well, of course. But uh, I don't know if you want to start off by just telling your story.
0: So where do I begin? Well, probably in Ireland, right? That's where I'm from. Grew up in Dublin, moved to Waterford, which is in the southeast of Ireland when I was 12. You know, pretty formative years to move from the middle of the city to the middle of the countryside. Got the internet you know, real crap internet that your mom would scream at you to get off the internet so she could call people. And I found out about punk music and um, online communities and and so forth. And started playing in punk bands. Uh, started actually making websites back when there was like no WordPress or any of these programs to make it easier. So if you were just like that bit better than everyone else, like I'm talking about you just had to be one lesson ahead, right? You could actually make some money off making websites. So then left school pretty early because, yeah, it wasn't for me. Um, the teachers were probably pretty happy about that too, to be fully frank. Yeah, just started uh, playing in punk bands, touring the world. I was touring in America before I was even allowed in the venue, probably. Japan, Australia, all over the place. Yeah, it was a lot of fun when I was off tour, because obviously we weren't exactly raking in the millions of euros, right? Playing punk music and sleeping on floors. So uh, I was like, where am I going to work? Kitchens seemed like a good fit for me. Growing up, I was always into food, seeing what my parents could make with um, with what they had, you know, the creativity in and around it. So. Decided to go work in kitchens um, to cook. not going to claim I was super good at it or anything, but I enjoyed it. And, you know, enjoyed the hectic hustle and bustle of it all. And, and especially the characters you got to meet in the kitchen. Because it was people from all walks of life with uh, some rather colourful vocabulary, I would say. Um, screaming and shouting the day long. And that, that suited me. After a while, I found out about Vice magazine. And I, I remember picking up that magazine. When they used to hand them out for free, they were all over town, right? I'm just thinking like, bloody hell, this magazine speaks to me. Yeah. So I went over there and asked them if they had a job. They interviewed me for a pretty long time and told me they wanted me to work for them, but they had no job for me and they had no money. So I said, great, I'll take it. So I took it and then I just did whatever needed doing, right? Like bit of this, bit of that. And we got to do so much fun stuff. It was crazy. Yeah. I ended up moving from Denmark to London to become the deputy managing editor of Vice International, which would say looking after 30 plus countries editorial on video before getting a call to come and work at uh, the Lab Bible as the content director. And that was pretty exciting for me because, you know, that wasn't this kind of niche school magazine, right? That was like 80% of all young people in the UK are are looking at it on a daily basis. I went in there and I remember my first day, I was like, okay, so what's our traffic like? And they told me the number and I was like, no, 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 not like yearly, you know, daily. And they said, no, that is the traffic we get every day. I was like, oh yeah, I knew that. I just remember like sweating bullets, but yeah, it was, it was cool just to see what they built there. Then at some point decided to move back to Denmark, kind of coincided with having a kid. Uh, Denmark's a really nice place to raise a kid as opposed to, you know, inner city London, right? Ended up building the, the brand for uh, Empirical Spirits, a booze brand that was born out of some of the alums from uh, Restaurant Noma, where they were really challenging that whole um, industry. It was very, very cool for me to see and, and to be part of, you know, being able to, to tell the story of that brand was awesome. If, if not quite challenging, because there were so many stories to tell on a daily basis, right? And how do you narrow it down to, to the most simple, so people even understand what it is to begin with? Because you know yourself, you can get very hyped up and there's a million stories you want to tell. Yeah. And from there, I went on to work at Tonser, amazing founders and vision, really disrupting football. I'm going to be fully frank, I couldn't give two shits about football. But uh, but I love the vision of helping young people take the power back in, in terms of their opportunities and um, they were changing the lives of a lot, a lot of young footballers, very exciting. But of course, you know, it's a football app that is entirely based on people being able to play football and then, like, two months after I joined, COVID happened or whatever. So, I was like, it's not going to be a lot of football for a while. Uh, so, I thought, you know what? Now's a good time as any to um, throw myself out into my own business because the world was so mad to begin with at that point, right? Nobody knew what was going on. So, I thought, I might as well make it even more unreliable and more mad. Uh, so, decided to, to build Demi. Demi. From the get-go has been very much about getting chefs and and I use that term quite broadly chefs, culinary creators, you know wine experts, what have you actually getting them fairly compensated for all that passion and knowledge they have that has taken many different forms and um, we've kind of landed on one now yeah it's going good. we have a team of seven people at the minute and um, yeah we're still going for it. So, yeah, that's kind of the broad overview of my story. It makes no sense to me. People say, oh, yeah, your career trajectory makes so much sense, right? You know, that was really clever planned out. I'm like, yeah, plan. I was just taking opportunities when they came, came up and seeing where you go. and what Getting involved in what you're interested in in that moment. And I think um, I've been lucky enough to work with some great people and learn a lot of cool things.
2: That's so cool. And I also feel like your story is so serendipitous in terms of, yeah, you just, as you mentioned, take on the the next challenge or the next opportunity that kind of come to you and then you get the best out of that and do that in, in your own way. How would you say going from punk to tech to vice to like back and forth and, and all of this, what has always been the same in, in your approach in terms of creativity and in terms of how you go out and tell the stories about the brand or the the, the company that you work at?
0: sometimes i think that's it's quite difficult to answer because however you do things as a person are generally so innate and built into you that it's kind of hard to put a finger on what that would be i think retrospectively looking at it what really got me excited about all these opportunities was just the hands-on sort of do-it-yourself creativity of it i think in punk bands you would book your own tour, you print your own shirts, you do everything yourself. DIY was the nature of it. And ending up at businesses that on the outside might look like really big businesses, right? Where everything, you know, runs really smoothly, but getting in there, you're like, you know, that's never the way, right? Like things are held together with tape and um, being able just to bring that DIY aspect into it and maybe not solve problems always in in a really linear manner. Thinking outside the box, yeah, hustling and just getting it done. If something needed to get done, you you know, you didn't wait for somebody to do it for you. You just figured out the best, not necessarily always the most legal way to get it done, but you got it done. And that's what really excited me. And also all those companies for me were just so rich in storytelling because of what they did. And obviously, but then the communities they would built up around them. You know, Lab Bible has what? I don't know, a couple of hundred million followers or something absolutely absurd like that. And uh, everyone, those people, has a story. And Lab Bible, for me, what the founders of that were really good at spawning was that the more you involve people and the more they get to tell their story, the more they feel part of it. And the more they feel part of it, you know, the bigger it all grows, this thing. So, yeah, storytelling. And in terms of food, I just like food, really. But I mean, I guess beyond that, you know, food is, it's a great um, platform to bring people together, right? It brings people together like no other thing does multiple times a day. It's a great conversation starter. It's a great connector of, of people. When, when you go to another country, I think the best way to understand that country and its people is through, you know, a home-cooked meal. Sometimes you can't even speak the same language or whatever, but that home cooked meal is just so rich in history and in emotion and passion and so forth that um, I think it's a it's a very powerful uh, thing, and it it also tells its own story in a way. So yeah, storytelling is a word I use a lot, and you will hear that throughout this podcast. It will get really repetitive.
1: Can you tell a bit more about like demi?
0: Yeah, so. At the start of the pandemic, I set up an Instagram account called Support Copenhagen Food, which basically the idea was that so many of my friends' restaurants, they were really struggling in that period for obvious reasons, right? They initially, even prior to the pandemic, they barely had any margins whatsoever that, you know, they're not making money. And then all of a sudden they couldn't have guests. Like, what did they do? So a lot of them pivoted to takeaway meals, which... Turned out not to be a great business model for them either, given that a lot of the companies that deliver the meals, like, you know, take a 30% margin or whatever, whereas they weren't even making a 30% margin to begin with. I wanted this uh, support company and food account to to basically highlight restaurants that were doing stuff and people could share it and people could, you know, support the restaurants they cared about and it was Growing quite fast, to be honest. I think generally it will when you build social accounts in around a moment or in around a cause or or in around some people again community want to get involved in tell their own story. I just thought like, hmm, this seems sort of like a a short term fix, right? Like, I wonder if there's a business model in helping restaurants and chefs, and like I say, culinary entrepreneurs, that's a, a bit more long-term. We ended up raising some money and pitching the first version of Demi, which was essentially you as a chef, you could you could launch a community online and people could pay to be part of that community, your, your biggest supporters. And I guess the idea was to move a bit away from the sort of, you know, the, the roar of the Instagram feed or whatever, where it's just so much like Content, 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 but it's not like, sure, they use the term community a lot, but it's not really community, right? It's just very top down. Well, we were like, I wonder will this work? So instead of like building something or whatever, we we just launched a load of WhatsApp chats uh, with chefs and then charged people to come in and we see if it worked. And it did. Um, certainly, you know, I think it was very labor intensive uh, for the hosts um, and they may have had a lot more time during the pandemic. Um, to, to do that but as soon as as soon as the world started opening up again they didn't have as much time as they did before and then you know some of the communities were sort of they hit a plateau and they started fizzling out a bit but I, I was still obsessed with this idea of us um helping these people monetize and helping these people just get paid what they're worth They you know they put so many hours into learning into like creating into really making sure that we all eat better, right? And they they should be paid for that. So we kind of dissected the chats a bit and we were looking at their Instagram profiles, them being the chefs, and really looking at what was happening out there. And it, it sort of dawned on us that all the chats were essentially whether explicitly or otherwise they were essentially product recommendations that people were using all the time and then we went into the chef's instagram we saw everything they post they're wearing an apron or they have a knife or they have a uh, oven or whatever and a friend of mine ben he actually he, he said this to me and it, it makes so much sense that these chefs are making markets by these recommendations like they put a cookbook out there, there's tons of products in there, but they don't see a penny of any of it do on us that we're living in an age as well where customer acquisition costs for a lot of these brands are skyrocketing because Apple's privacy policy, which I think is a good thing. Uh, Google's third-party cookie stuff happening and um, it was just getting too expensive and inefficient to gain new customers and um, so when you couple that with the fact that there's all these people over here you can't see my hands but uh, one, I'm on. chefs on the one side that need to make more money and are already making product recommendations and the other side you got brands that like Obviously, believe it or not, brands want to sell more stuff uh, and not pay as much to do it. And audience wants to make, well, audience want expert recommendations, right? You don't want to walk into some random store and ask some random person which the best knife is because they're just going to be like, okay, that one over there. So when you put all that together, we, we realized that there was a huge opportunity to build a more democratic sort of affiliate program, if you will. So we've actually pivoted over to that. So now with Demi, Anybody in the you know culinary world or otherwise can launch a digital storefront. They can pick from a list of products with brands we partner with, whose e-commerce systems we're, we're connected to via API. They can just pick them, add the products to their uh, storefront, connect it directly to their social media, and tag the products in their posts. And if they sell something, well, they get a cut of it anywhere between 20 and 50%. And then the brand takes care of all the logistics and they don't have to think about that whatsoever. I think it's cool that in this day and age, we as consumers can actually feel comfortable in knowing that everyone across the value chain is actually getting paid equitably in this exchange. There's nobody who's acting predatory manner, right? Like it's panicalism where everybody wins across the chain and that's... I think something consumers will be very conscious about moving forward, at least I hope it is. So yeah, we've been trying this new kind of setup lately, and the tests are really positive. We built it real quick because the the folks on the team working on the app are absolute weapons when it comes to this. Um, And yeah, it seems to be working, but you know, it's an interesting time, global economic meltdown to do a pivot, but here we are. We don't like it easy, so let's, uh, let's do
2: it. I think it's, it's so interesting the way that you look at brands and how they act more as people and how they build community and how you've approached that both in, in Demi at the moment, but also from your past experience. What we at Corpus also have kind of experienced throughout the years and what we really believe in is this notion of, you know, as I know you also uh, preach, uh, it's the way that, you know, stop talking about your product all the time and, and start creating communities start telling stories that puts you as a brand a bit more in the background and then let your users become the, the hero of the story. How do you see that going forward in, in the next five, ten years? What do you see people expect from, from brands in, in this day and age? I
0: mean, that's a great question. I think um, the internet for so long has obviously been, I mean, about the consumers sort of like giving away their data and then brands target them for it. And for a lot of people, you know, that was a surprise. They, I think they had some idea of how much of that was going on, but not to the sort of full extent of it. So these days, I think people are much more aware of that and they're like, well, no, fuck you. I want to get paid too, right? And I think that's only good. Um, so I think brands that want to throw about the word community a lot, brands love throwing about the word community. That is the best word they know right now. But really, a lot of the time they're talking about They're talking about audience, right? Because they just want to gather audience and kind of spit their message at them rather than community for me is bringing people together. And more than just the people being together, it's about what they do together and the bonds that are created between them. The why of why they're coming together. Nobody comes together around a brand because they just love that brand's advertising. Or maybe like some people do. They sound like fun at a dinner party, but in general, like people just want to feel involved, right? It's not like a lot of these people, are like consumers, that they all want to, you know, make a ton of money off being part of a brand's community and being able to get paid for that or whatever. But I, I think they just want to be paid what's fair to them, and they want to be respected. They want to be talked to, not sold to, or sorry, talked with at least, not sold to, and they just want. Transparency, I think, right? Because so many people have gone around for years saying that they're transparent when they're not. They're saying that they're building community when they're not. You know, people aren't stupid. Like, stop treating them like they're stupid. Start involving them, and believe it or not, they'll be happy. It's a wacky notion, right? But uh, it's true. I think over the next coming years, we're going to see much more dispersed commerce, right? Like, everybody's going to become a point of commerce. And because There are so many experts out there in the fields of what they do. I think back in the day you used to go to like physical shops because the person who had that shop was an expert in that field. So you would go there to learn from an expert. And then that kind of got consolidated into malls where you shoved all these shops together. And then the next evolution of that with the internet was these big players that, you know, have billions of products and they all just happen to have like, you know, a thousand 4.9 star reviews that are definitely not made by bots. So I think over time, the trust of the consumer has been eroded, if you will. And um, they don't necessarily trust these people as experts anymore. So I think we're going to see a switch back to... I guess in marketing terms, you would call um, micro influencers like people not with these hundred thousand followers or whatever, but one or two thousand followers, maybe 10,000 followers because those people are more often experts in their field. Maybe they don't have as many followers simply because they're just concentrated on this one niche. But those are the people that tend to build community because their follower count is it's manageable enough for them to stay in touch with their with their community to interact with their community and many times we'll see that their engagement is actually like seven times higher than the 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 so-called big influencers which were everybody's a bit tired of anyway like what are the odds every time you see one of those videos of somebody saying this is the best toothbrush i've ever tried it was you know invented yesterday you know people just don't trust that stuff anymore they want to trust real people
1: Talked a bit about chefs and how you know they use some certain tools and their community follows that and they want to buy the same tools because they follow the chefs and think they are great at what they're doing. If the chefs are monetizing that, so they get a paid percentage if they sell a certain knife or so on and so forth, that could remind a bit of you know some of the bigger influencers where they get paid and how does the the chef or the influencer sort of maintain their integrity when? selling these products now that they are getting paid for it
0: i think that's a a really interesting question and on the one hand time will tell right but on the other hand you as a chef if you're working in the kitchen 14 hours a day and you have to use that knife 14 hours a day if it's a piece of crap you're not going to be stand there using it and you're not going to you know be recommending something that people can see you're obviously not using in your kitchen i think the difference here. For me, at least, is that we being Demi are, are giving people a platform that allows them to, to operate within commerce as opposed to marketing, if you will, because nobody is paid by the brand prior to, um, you know, something being sold. In that way, it is no different than, you know, owning a store. It's not you are paid to like this. It's like, I like this. I put it on my site. I already put it on my Instagram. Why shouldn't I sell this? Also, with a lot of these chefs, the content is going to be like, hey, check out this knife. It's like super cool or whatever. Or, or you go and you see like big car commercial where there's a chef and their chef white sitting in the car going, yay, cars or whatever. That makes no sense, right? It's like it's the products that they're already using in all their pictures and just tagging them, right? Because I, I think, again, that comes down to like authenticity and community and talking with people rather than talking at them. Like when you see something that's so, that's so explicitly advertorial as like, Hey, check out this knife. It's super cool. And only like 4,000 pounds, you know, like nobody wants that. Have you ever seen like a, a three second YouTube pre-roll? It's like time slows down.
2: That's just not how it works anymore. People don't care. I think it's super interesting and like looking at where we are at, at the moment and also maybe speaking from a more generational perspective I feel like there's a lot of young people who've really grown tired of all of this like pushing products down the throat and like really having to be forced to listen in on, on ads and all this so so I think the brands that are increasingly winning community and audience trusts are those who like really manage to to do it in an authentic way and, and doing it in a way where they also give their community, I say, in the whole thing. Whereas I see a lot of brands still who are super controlling about keeping their narrative and keeping their look and feel, and, and they don't really want to include people and stories and their users until their stories, even though they, they say they, they want to go that way, but then when they post that, sometimes they they argue that that's at least what we've heard uh, more, uh, these like creative-driven brands, fashion, interior, and all this, that they don't see as much engagement and as much sales arrive from that. Um, what, what's your take on that? Do you think it's a, a transition they have to get used to and, and move more into in terms of like bringing the community in and making it more authentic rather than staying in this lane where they just keep posting about the products and just keep hooking in uh, sales? You know, dinosaurs die, right? Like They just do. So if you think about,
0: you know, there was people who thought the internet was such a fad And it wasn't going to do anything, right? Like, you know, this, "Ah, it'll go over that internet. You know, you don't see so many CDs out there anymore. You don't see, you know, it's not even innovation. It's just, you know, catching up with the times, really. Like, things change. And if you don't change with them, you know, you die. That's just the truth of it. And historically, that's happened, I think, in every industry, right? And so I think it's really up for brands to, to see what's happening out there. Not even look at what's happening, you know, just now, but you're trying to, you know, skate to where the hockey puck is going to be, rather than where it is right now. Um, and a lot of brands just won't do that, and yeah, uh, and then we're going to lose a lot of brands. Um, I think too many people are stuck in their ways, and they're ignorant, and they sit on some board, and they think, "Oh, we know the best." You know, what the hell are these you know pesky little kids doing over here? We'll tell them what's good for them, but you know, give it a few years and see see what they're doing. They'll become begging to um, be doing it in this way that they should have been for a long time. Again, to that point as well, a lot of brands, they seem to love to say words like community. And they seem to love to say, no, we're telling our user story. We're doing what our users want. And then they'll post a picture of their product and be like, press like if you like this product. And everyone will be like, "Uh huh? So I think customers and consumers, they... They expect a brand to live up to their words these days. Um, People are very clever, very, very clever. The internet has made a lot of experts for better and for worse out there, but people just don't want to be treated like idiots anymore.
1: We've talked a bit about building community and building community around Demi. And I think we're a bit curious to hear sort of your take on, you know, how do you make the distinction, at least for a brand, between having an audience and then having a community around the brand? I
0: think an audience is when the brand speaks at people. Building a community is when the brand brings people together to connect with each other. And that's quite often in and around the values of the brand, as opposed to the the literal product of the brand. And I think, think about it like a dinner party, right? If you brought six people over and then you sat at the top of the table and all six sat in a row at the other end and you just shouted at them for the whole dinner. It's not really a dinner party, right? You bring people over. You're the one who brings people together to speak with each other. You set the tone. Ultimately, if they're not all speaking together, it's not a dinner party. And I think that community is a little like that.
2: How do you look at the next generation of creative people? I don't know if you identify as a creative person, but that is at least what I would uh, call you. How do you see that? Do you see any shifts in, in the way that more young people are approaching creativity in these days?
0: I don't know. Like creative's a word I've always heard, but again, it's just like I think it's just how my brain is, right? Like I see I want to create things. I wanna, you know, do stuff. And I think, yeah, I mean it's changing quick now, right? Like if you see all the stuff happening on TikTok and how, you know, quick that went. Um and how many like really, really funny but also really clever informational, um, videos have popped up out of nowhere and they're coming like tick and fast now it's amazing like 10 years ago you had to go through so many gatekeepers to sort of make content or like there's people saying yes or no but now anyone can be a you know a content creator or a publisher because these people are providing the tools god knows what that's going to be like a few years from now to be honest i wouldn't hazard a guess it's cool to see so many younger people having I mean, the sort of confidence that I wish I had when I was a kid, right? To, to go out and create and to, to have their voices heard. And for like platforms to be giving them the tools to do that, it's just, it's amazing to see what's out there. Yeah. For so long, there were so many gatekeepers that like, it was only certain voices that got heard. And there was a lot of marginalized voices that just didn't get heard because there was no way for them. So I think we're seeing a lot more perspectives now. And giving a lot more place, hopefully, to people to um, to have their voices heard. Yeah.
1: In regards to sort of having one's voice heard, you have been speaking quite openly about like both autism and HD, uh, HD on, on social media. Why is it sort of important for you to to talk about these things openly?
0: So let's give some context there at like the age of 34, I'm 37. I was diagnosed with ADHD, which is a a funny condition, right? It's essentially like measured in how irritating you are to other people (laughs) as opposed to how like it affects you in your daily life, right? Like then the struggles you go through in your daily life. Like I mentioned before, like school was not fun for me. Going to a Catholic school in Ireland with a thousand boys. You know, you sit still for eight hours a day, whatever, and you're supposed to digest all this knowledge and then just spit it back out. And they don't care if you remember it or not. It just made no sense to me. And I got, like, kicked out of class for asking what I thought were fair questions. So, like, at the age of 34, to be honest, I've been having tons of anxiety for years, like panic attacks for, like, 15, 20 years, right? And, like, been through every sort of therapy or, like, medicine to stop that or whatever. But then, well, it turns out it wasn't an anxiety problem, right? I had ADHD. Which I don't think 20 years ago people even in Ireland even knew what that was, (laughs) to be fully frank. So that certainly helped me um, understand how my brain works a lot better and what my skill set is, what it isn't, and how I put structures on things and so forth to to make life easier. And, you know, that's certainly been great. Still, something wasn't quite right. And then, (laughs) to tell you the truth, I got really into it as anyone who sees my Instagram knows, memes um, about a- about ADHD. And then, you know, how it is you go down a rabbit hole of memes and then all of a sudden you're in a new niche. And I was like, ADHD and autism memes. And I was like looking at like seven, eight, nine of them and I was like, <laughs> that's very relatable. And by number 10, I was like, that is very relatable <laughs> in terms of autism. I was thinking, okay, what's going on here? So getting diagnosed with things, especially in around mental health is... It can be quite a struggle, which is in some ways good because you don't just want to go around throwing labels on people for the sake of it. But yeah, we went through this process of like figuring out whether or not I had autism and then you start reading about autism and you start learning about what that even is, right? Because like if you had asked me a few years ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. To be honest, if you had asked me six months ago, I wouldn't have been fully able to tell you what it was. And arming yourself with that knowledge about it, what it is how it works it's sort of you know puts a lot of your life and the struggles you've had with certain things or the the relationships you've had or why you you know you feel like a total fucking alien every time you're out with a big group of people you know it, it all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense and it, it's sort of like be honest then you just sat there looking thinking, phew you know i thought i was like you know this is really special there's something wrong with me this is really special and then you read a book about it you're like oh wait no I'm just like all literally exactly like all these other people over here. And generally having that understanding and being equipped with that knowledge just helps you to to understand yourself better in your day-to-day life. Lead a much happier life and get the most out of the life. Get the most out of the skills you have in life and not feel like a, like a total you know failure half the time. Um, which we all do anyway. Part of the game. This imposter syndrome 101, right? But uh, it was important for me to go out and talk about it because there's so many people out there. Kids, adults, parents of kids that are really struggling with these issues and they don't have that knowledge and they don't see people who on social media have success we all paint the best part of ourselves and they're right and um you know it's important for me to to kind of spread the word around of the things I didn't know that I would have loved to know growing up that would have certainly helped me a lot and you know that obviously resonated with people because I think that post has been viewed more than a million times which I not expect to happen, to be honest. I wrote it in about 60 seconds, sitting on the floor, waiting for my kid to go to bed. It's amazing to see how many people it resonated with and how many people in my network who've wrote me saying, look, you know, I've been scared of this for years. That's very inspiring. Now I'm going through the process of, you know, getting diagnosed myself. Do you have any um, info you can send me and relate to? And and so many people are saying, because of this, you know, it's changed my life already. That's cool. Like everyone deserves to understand themselves better and live a better life so being able to give them just a few people even like just the launch pad to do that that's that's just awesome and also i think in general like it's important to me that we all feel confident to speak openly about who we are and what we are without being embarrassed yeah it's just important to to be honest and um, people like it that's great makes me
2: happy if they don't like it well you know i won't say it I think that's so cool. And that like brutally honesty that I at least have experienced you as a person uh, and also as a leader and as an entrepreneur, is that something that you have always had in in you to be like that fully open about like also your mental being and and, like how that makes you the person that you are and and, like makes you, you know, able to do things that other people may not are able to do. And and at least it characterizes you, right? And speaking from after this realization of of, uh, having HD and autism, how that changed your life?
0: I think in some ways I've always been pretty open and blunt in a way that like, maybe I've said things that like aren't normal to say in a social setting. Cause you know, I'm like, oh, you can't say that. Why can't you say that? But like, I think it's taken me a long time to get that confidence. I was today years old when I got that confidence, you know. I wasn't like I've always I don't know, I've been a very nervous person, you know, especially with the whole autism thing. To be honest, I could go out with a whole group full of people and just literally feel like I was from a different planet, you know, like looking at all this small talk happening and not knowing how to fit in or it's you know, shout about something that nobody cared about but I could probably talk about for four hours. Actually I just wanted to, you know, sit at home on my computer and code or play the guitar or record something or create something i didn't actually like going out in these big groups it's only like now i'm admitting that to myself and actually really trying to feel what it is that i want to do and what makes me happy and live by it no i'm very very conscious of other people for a very long time hopefully you know that opening up about it um can give space uh, to people to to invest more time in the things that they really love to do as opposed to like forcing themselves to be part of situations that they don't actually want to be part of. And I think you'll see a massive um, overlap, right, between undiagnosed autism and things like alcoholism or um you know, substance abuse, because people, they're they're so stressed out and overwhelmed or want to fit in with things or whatever, and they can't. So they, they end up using these crutches to, to, to fit in in that way. And yeah, again, speaking openly about it can hopefully lead to people living the lives they want to live. Because until further, I have seen no science that would say we're going to live more than once. Uh, so, you know, you might as well have a good laugh while you do it and do the stuff you want to do. I mean, as much as you can, we all got to, pay the bills too right
2: and and speaking about living the life that you want to live what would what would you say would be the the recipe for your definition of, of a good life sometimes we all think oh, we have to feel
0: great all the time right Or like we're going for it oh everything that's be great just be content if you can just feel content and contentment can come from very very many things i think but finding that thing or those things out that give you that contentment is very, very, very important. And I think it's funny, right? Because there's loads of coaches who just be like, yeah, just, you know, live by your values, do what you love to do. But so many of us are like, I don't know what I love to do. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, you know, even as an adult, you're saying that. So like, it is hard to figure out, um, especially in this fast paced day and age, you know, all the aspirations we have. I think it's hard to figure out what, what really makes us happy. I mean, like what we want to do but investing more and more time in that and cracking that code is very important and i think it's funny right because we all know they say like you spend your late 20s and early 30s trying to figure out what it is you want to do who you want to be what your what your values are and it weirdly it all comes back to stuff you were doing when you were like 10 or 11 you just strayed massively away from but yeah just
1: being content can you remember sort of a time where you recently felt like now you are in a good spot? You, you feel happy uh, right here and right now?
0: That's a really cool question. I was cycling my bike the other day and I remember the sun was out. It was October, so it wasn't particularly warm. But I just remember looking around and smiling and then catching myself doing it. I don't even know why I'm smiling. You know, it wasn't like there was this crazy thing that just happened. It just felt like it's all right, you know? And I think, um, yeah, a lot of that comes from understanding more and more about ourselves and understand like building the, the work life we want to lead right it doesn't all have to look like nine to five you know like I'm useless at work before about 12 if it was up to me i'd work in the night but um you know find the rhythms that work for you um looking after yourself is so important. Like we all think, you know, you have a business, you have to work crazy hours or whatever. No, I would just ditch some sleep. But that's like the quickest route to hell in a way. Like if you're not looking after yourself, you can't look after your business. You can't look after your family. You can, that's really where it all starts. And that isn't revolutionary either. Right. I've had people telling me that for years, but then I was like, Oh, I did it. I was like, Oh fuck. They were right. Yeah. Just general contentment. It's good. Don't worry, I mean, I have bad days too, don't get me wrong, Jesus Christ. But uh, You'd be lying if you said you
2: didn't. Switching lanes a bit, maybe back to um, creativity. What would you say is your process of of creativity and how do you kind of put together food and then combine that with something else that you learned back in your time at a punk band or uh, Advice or or different places you've been? How do you go about a creative process?
0: such a hard question to answer, you know. I've been like... Even that question keeps me up at night sometimes because I'm like, I'm trying to explain my process to other people within my work environments has caused probably a massive amount of confusion in people because they're just like, I, I don't know what he's on about. You know, how do you explain how your brain works? <laughs> it's it's quite difficult. So for me, it's absorbing as much knowledge as I can through podcasts, books, you know, music is probably my biggest passion cooking like from all over the place and um, not just like directly related to again like air quotes thing that you do right it's about understanding all these disciplines all these ones that inter- interest you and about the processes involved and um, I mean my brain just starts making those connections in a way that potentially isn't as linear as other people but then again I don't know because I've only ever been in my own brain so I've only ever tried that so like I wouldn't hazard a guess on how other people's brains work. When you take the autistic brain from what I understand, please somebody let me know if I'm wrong here. Um basically when we're born all of us our brains uh they're all like hyperconnected all over the same and as we grow up the brain starts pruning those connections a lot of them uh, just down to the useful one. Whereas the the autistic brain um has far more connections across it that connect in different ways and piece different things together in different ways. And that would explain a lot of kind of the the, the confused, worried looks I've gotten when I suggest things at work because they're like, what the heck is going on here? And um, simply because I'm, I'm trying to put all these different um, pieces together, or, or at least that's what comes naturally to me and how I work. If I should boil it down to to anything, especially for me, I have to keep keep absorbing knowledge from many different viewpoints and to um, challenge yourself to to answer questions or to solve problems in, in a way that like isn't just the one you, you read in that book right like here is a book about how you do marketing right like yeah cool there's principles in there that work but like look at the internet it's changing rapidly every single day you need to keep learning you need to keep connecting challenge your assumptions yeah I suppose that's it I mean, that was the biggest way to dodge your question, because the truth is I have no a fucking clue.
1: We've talked so much about creativity and here in Generation C, we really try to sort of explore whole term creativity. And it doesn't have to sort of be the, the textbook definition, but to you, how do you sort of see creativity? What is it to you?
0: So that's a fun question because I knew you were going to ask that question. And I went away this morning, looked up in the dictionary. What is the term for, like, what's the explanation for creativity? Because to be honest, I couldn't even, like, tell you what the textbook one was, right? There's creativity in, in every single person out there. There just is, you know. I think a lot of people imagine this creative type that's like, you know, this real wacky person with, you know, super colourful clothes. And they're, you know, painting and they're they do everything and they're far out there. But... Like, every time I hear somebody say, oh, I'm not a creative person, I'm like, you know, bollocks, that's not true. Like, it's just not true. That's more about how you view yourself than anything else. And how I see creativity is like bringing new things into the world through answering questions or solving problems. You know, in every field, there's creativity. And most of the times it comes from not necessarily reinventing the wheel, And it's about using the talents you have to solve those problems or answer those questions, whatever they may be. You don't have to go around wielding a paintbrush to be creative or whatever. It can, it can be anything. Um, I think that question as well, I'm going to struggle with for a long time on answering that in a clear, concise way. Because it's such a, you know, that concept is so out there in the ether in a way, right? Like, what is it? Um, and how do you put your finger on it? right? Like, but it's, uh, it's, I think there, it's something more, it's something bigger. than than whatever might be written in a dictionary.
2: That was it for our conversation with Ian. We hope you've enjoyed it. And as always, you can find more episodes of Generation C in your podcast app or on the Corpus website.
1: My name is Carl. And my name is Julius. And you have listened to Generation C.